We're in Matthew chapter 13 today. You might have said we were in Matthew 13 last week. Good catch. Yes, we were. But we are in Matthew 13 again, and I'll explain why in a minute. But first, the passage. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid, and then in their joy they go and sell all they have and buy that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. We're spending three weeks in Matthew chapter 13 in the midst of this series, What Matthew Saw. It's a chapter full of parables that were likely not told all at once and were told to different groups more than once. They're a representative sample of Jesus's teaching and Matthew clustered them all together in the middle of his biography because the middle is where an ancient biographer puts their main point as they interpret the meaning of the person whose story they're telling. These parables are all about the kingdom. Jesus has announced its arrival here among us, and yet, despite its presence, it's often missed. Or, in the case of what Jesus said today, hidden. That the kingdom could even be hidden was something of a revelation in and of itself. The markers people anticipated, healing and freedom and good news for the poor, they were also expected to align with the full return from exile to Israel. So that whole experience, it would be obvious. Rome, who's in their land, would leave or be defeated. What do you mean it's hidden? But like Curtis shared last week, for those who have been formed to look and hear according to their own lens and their own filter, then the kingdom is hiding in plain sight. There are five elements in these little parables, not an absolute sequence that always happens just so, but a set of experiences that Jesus describes and I want us to turn our attention to today. The first is some sort of summons. A person either seeks or happens to find the treasure. In one parable, they're looking, but in the other, they sort of stumble upon it. So sometimes you might hear someone emphasize that we need to be looking for Jesus and the life he offers, how important our seeking is. But I think this suggests that it's less about the search, more about the response to the discovery. People cross paths with Jesus in many ways, but the question is, once you find him, what do you do next? How does someone who finds the hidden gem of the kingdom of God respond? The response then has three markers. First, an emotional reaction of joy, great joy. Second, a sense of urgency. This is it. I am putting my trust into this discovery. Also, this reality of the kingdom expanding matters. There is urgency in putting our trust there and urgency to its expansion. And third, in addition to an emotional reaction of joy and a sense of urgency, there is a trade-off. In response to discovering the kingdom in both parables, Jesus says that finder sells all they have to buy what they found. Now, selling everything in a literal way is the response for some folks, but more importantly, the choice to frame the response in terms of something financial is intentional. In selling all they had, the finders are forsaking other options for their lives and their futures. In order to get that pearl, they sell off the other pearls. I'm sure they were nice pearls, good pearls, but they weren't this pearl. We have said before in our community, 
how an idol is anything we look to, hoping it will protect and provide for us. What will take care of us? What will make sure we're all okay? In going all in for the field, the finder gives up other options to take care of them. They give up their backup plans. In other words, they get rid of their idols. And that costs them something. But then the fifth and final element to this response is the resolution. A deep sense, this was worth it. This was worth it. I get to be part of this kingdom ruled by God where goodness and justice are meant to expand to every part of life in every part of the world. But this flow can be readily disrupted. It was true then. It's true in our lives. It's true in the lives of people we care about who are also trying to figure out if the kingdom is the place they want to be. And while the parables on their own maybe seem like they are pointing to choosing Jesus once, like I bought the field and now I have the field, I think they also line up with a theme throughout the New Testament where being a follower of Jesus is an ongoing choice that we keep making in some ways daily, in some ways seasonally as things come up. We find ourselves returning to this flow and having to check in again on the degree to which we want to be part of a kingdom reality. And so the summons comes, whether that is curiosity or crisis, our history with faith in the past, or simply a nudge within us for something more. But instead of feeling joy, the emotional reaction is one of fear, suspicion, or self-protection. That may be about theology or the Bible, questions that need answering. It may be about the reality that folks who claim to be representatives of this kingdom have done extremely harmful things. And what does that mean for this kingdom? Or it may come from a sense of self-protection or wanting control, wanting to secure my own future so I can prevent pain. I remember 10 years ago when Curtis and I were middle school pastors and I had a small group of eighth grade girls. We were talking about choosing Jesus and I can remember a student confident as can be saying, no, I'm going to do my thing first and make my money then I'll come back to that. The summons asks a lot, maybe too much. And because of that, instead of feeling urgency, the feeling that comes instead is, this can wait. I can always find some sort of good answer to that question later. I can dig into how to reconcile that hard thing another time. And in the meantime, God will understand I'm basically a good person. But maybe God doesn't care if you're a good person. Maybe even God doesn't care how much time you need to work on the hard questions. Maybe God just cares if you trust God. It's less about what we believe and more about who we trust. And beyond that, you know what? It can't wait. There's urgency because the world outside the kingdom's reach needs the kingdom to break in. There's urgency because kids are struggling and achievement gaps aren't inevitable realities. They are the result of education inequity. There's urgency because not one life should be lost to police brutality. There's urgency because racist violence against Asian Americans has created ripples of fear in the whole community and they wonder if anyone cares. There's urgency because families seeking safety are waiting and longing for asylum. There's urgency because a host of brilliant, creative, beautiful ideas to solve problems are smoldering in the minds of women, queer people, and people of color, but they're never fanned into flames of change. The kingdom, God's image restored and honored in every person, 
goodness and justice flooding every corner of the world. Its arrival is urgent. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth, Lord. The next piece of the response is the moment when we have to make a trade-off. In our family, we are currently teaching our boys the phrase opportunity cost. Because for them, when it comes to time, they are forever asking to play outside, ride bikes, start this game, read this section of their kid magazine, finish that drawing, watch our family show, read as many bedtime books as possible. And we keep having to coach them through. If you want all your books, you need to wrap up that game. If you want to use your time to play, you won't be able to build that Lego kit today. You're going to have to make a trade-off. There's an opportunity cost to be factored. And the thing with our lives is this. If we choose to use them to chase fanciness, influence, platform, experiences, perfection, or if we just really want to be the ones calling the shots and running the show, if we choose whatever we think will give us peace, meaning, joy, and life, well, that's what we've used our life for. If you want the pearl, you got to sell off the other pearls to buy it. And then the final element of all of this, the man with the field, the merchant with the pearl, they're sure the cost was worth it. But is it? Life in the kingdom absolutely costs something. If it didn't, it would be what Diedrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Cheap grace is the notion that God's got me. I don't need to change my life. Bonhoeffer says, grace alone does everything, they say. And so everything can remain as it was before. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without asking for repentance. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. He goes on, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a person will gladly go and sell all that they have. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all their goods. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a person their life. And it is grace because it gives them the only true life. Cheap grace wants the benefits of life in the kingdom. The peace of Christ, the friendship with other believers, the wisdom of God in hard times, the fortitude to walk through hard things all without having to make a single change to participate in it. No time, reading, or unlearning or action to dismantle white supremacy. No sacrifice to mend or make reparations to communities of color. No giving up our seat at the tables of power, let alone asking if Jesus would flip that table right over. No generosity to be sure the hungry are fed, or that bodies are warm and clothed, or that people have homes. No, just... Give me my personal salvation, my personal connection to Jesus, my personal peace, cheap grace. Is it worth it? This is the question where Jesus offers a strong yes. And we all know that's the right answer. Yes, it is worth the cost of rejecting other sources of protection and provision to live my life with Jesus in the kingdom. And yet, I think it's both healthy and wise to be allowed to suspend that right answer sometimes and talk about it. Is it worth it? In fact, despite the right answer, there are numerous accounts through the Old Testament of prophets and psalmists both asking 
is it worth it? And flat out telling God they think it's not. That their experience of the cost-benefit analysis is not working out. And so it is worth giving this question some time. When we were together live, we broke into some conversation groups around our virtual tables to talk about it. To talk about the things that make following Jesus and living in the kingdom worth it. To talk about the things that make us wonder if it's not. And before we broke into that group, I just wanted to offer them, and I'll offer you now, one encouragement. Since Jesus' words have a sense of urgency, and since they invite both the hearers then at the time and us now to respond, there's a risk. A risk of should. As in, I should do what I know this passage says. I should assess if I've given up enough, if I am wanting cheap grace or costly grace. I should always feel like the kingdom is a treasure. I should always feel like this is all worth it. When we should ourselves, it gets harder to hear God's spirit speak. Shoulding turns us inward. It's a response that works against both openness and relationship, which are core values in our group. Openness that our posture in exploring our faith and the Bible is positioned where we can hear God's voice and sense God's movement. We're open to it. We can ask God, is it worth it? And not be afraid of giving that question space. And relationship that says, I will sit in hard questions with you. We aren't going to tell someone exactly what they should think or feel. We don't should on each other. And so I would encourage you on your own, perhaps with a journal or on a walk, allow yourself the space to ask, what makes life in the kingdom worth it? Or what would make it worth it? And what makes you wonder if maybe it's not? You can talk to your friend Jesus about your real answers to those questions without any fear. Is it worth it? Each week, our church celebrates communion. We eat and drink and remember Jesus, who we must remember also gave things up for the sake of the kingdom becoming reality. We and Christ both give things up for the kingdom. So if we say yes, yes to Jesus, yes to the kingdom, yes to selling what we have and making a trade-off we believe will be worth it, we are at best going second. Christ said yes first. Yes to the summons to come to earth among us, God in a body. Philippians 2 reminds us that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but rather emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. Jesus' emotional reaction was joy. Hebrews 12.2 reminds us that we fix our eyes on Jesus, who's the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. He lived and taught with urgency, declaring the reality that the kingdom is at hand and inviting, 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 come follow me. Jesus made the trade-off. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. All because life with us in the kingdom reconnected to God's love and goodness, was completely worth it. The point of bringing the kingdom 
is to live with us in it. The body of Christ was then broken for us. The blood of Christ shed for us. And as often as we eat and drink of it, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And the kingdom is the only reality. Amen.